Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. It has been said uh, by various uh, authors, speakers, preachers, and teachers that uh, you should strive to do anything short of sin in order to lead someone to Jesus. You should do anything short of sin in order to lead someone to Jesus. Now, I don't know how that statement strikes you at first glance. My guess is, at least if you're anything like me, when you hear that statement, do anything short of sin in order to lead someone to Jesus, you, you, your immediate reaction is that it, it must be a little bit off. I mean, it's not that you disagree with the statement, it's not that you don't want to lead people to Jesus, it's not even that you wouldn't be willing to go to great lengths in order to lead someone to Jesus, it's just when it's put in that blunt of terms, do anything short of sin if it means leading someone to Jesus, it just sounds like it's got to be off, like there's got to be some loophole, some exception, something somewhere that disproves that statement. It can't be that simple and straightforward. And yet at the same time, the more I, I think about it, the more I think there is at minimum a, a grain of truth to that statement. Because if it is true that there is a one God who rules over all things, and that God has revealed himself to humanity through Jesus, and if following Jesus is the one way to find eternal life with God, if, the, if Jesus is the one solution to all the brokenness in our world, which are all truths that we believe in as followers of Jesus, it then follows that we should be willing to go to great lengths in order to ensure that those who are not currently following Jesus are uh, brought into a relationship with our God. Even if, if the lengths we go to might take us or those around us observing us, outside of our comfort zones. On the surface, I'll fully admit, it is a truth that sounds awkward and uncomfortable, like I said, maybe a little too blunt, but as, the, as we sit in that truth, we find, I think, what Jesus desires for us as he calls us to respond to who he is, both in our own lives and in how we share who Jesus is with others. And I say all of that because we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15 today. And and the the words we'll look at in this parable today are probably some of the strangest things Jesus ever says. It's been said that this is the most awkward parable Jesus ever tells. And I don't want to give away too much up front, but I think that is a fair uh, categorization because uh, Jesus gives us an example that I will fully admit when we read it right away, we look at it, it seems pretty negative. And yet Jesus will tell this story, give us this negative example, and then he will point to it and say, this is what you should be like if we want to be a part of his people. And that's pretty strange. But as is always the case with Jesus, if he is saying or doing things that make us uncomfortable, that probably indicates a fault in us more than a fault in him. As we dig into this parable, what we find is that Jesus tells us this story to give us an insight into the urgency of his kingdom. 
If it's true that we should do anything short of sin in order to lead someone to Jesus, that must mean uh, that things are urgent, and that must mean that we are to live as followers of Jesus as if everything, and I mean everything, hinges around the kingdom of God, because it actually truly does. But before we get into this specific passage, it's, it's worth backing up a little bit so we can get a running start into Luke chapter 16, because if you've been here over the last few weeks, you might have noticed that within this broader series we have been in, where we've been wanting to look at all of the parables of Jesus, we have really been zoomed in for a few weeks now on this one specific section within the Gospel of Luke. A few weeks ago, Rick walked us through the beginning of Luke chapter 14, where Jesus is at this uh, dinner party with a bunch of religious elite people who think they have everything figured out. Jesus doesn't, and Jesus tells them this story to show them that they are missing out on the call of the kingdom of God that he has come to bring. And through that, Jesus shows that anyone, not just the religious elite, are welcome within his kingdom. And then from there, we go into the the second half of Luke 14, which we looked at, where Jesus says a a variety of things, tells a couple of parables that are kind of hard to hear. As he says that anyone wanting to follow him needs to count the cost, needs to consider things ahead of time, needs to uh, think things through to make sure that they are up for the task of following Jesus. And that comes straight out of the beginning of Luke 14. Anyone is welcome within the kingdom of God, but they need to make sure they're up for the task when they say yes to Jesus. And from there, we go straight into Luke chapter 15, which we looked at last week. We looked at all of that chapter where Jesus is speaking to two groups of people, the the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the religious elite of his day, and the tax collectors and sinners. And to both of those groups, Jesus tells three stories that are all related of something that is lost being found, and there being a celebration once what is lost is found, regardless of whether or not it is uh, something that is actually truly lost and completely, uh, completely uh, lost and separated from the one looking for it, or if it is right there the whole time, doesn't think it needs to be found. In both situations, God celebrates when what is lost is found. And all of this has been building together, one right off of the other. Jesus has said, anyone is welcome within his kingdom, even though that calling is difficult. But for those who do say yes to that difficult call, the Father is waiting to throw a party when we come home to him. And all of that leads straight into Luke 16. There's no change in scenery if you have a Bible open in front of you right now. Jesus will shift who he's speaking to slightly. In Luke 15, he is speaking to this big group of people of all these different backgrounds. And here, he is going to shift and speak to his disciples, his closest followers. But what we'll find as we get to the end of this passage is that really, that big crowd is still overhearing what he is saying. And they have thoughts on what Jesus has to say in this passage, but this is all building out of what we have seen. Jesus has been laying out the stakes of what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And if we understand those stakes, it helps us make sense of this parable that can be so strange. Because if Jesus is right about the stakes he has been lining out over the past few chapters, then what he has to say about how we participate within his kingdom even in our day-to-day lives, starts to make a little more sense. So, without further ado, let's read Luke 16, verses 1 to 9. Jesus told his disciples, 
there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Manager said to himself, what, what shall I do now? Uh, my master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, uh, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people in this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The stories of a rich man and his manager, I don't know if it's a perfect parallel, but maybe the closest one to our world today is that of uh, the owner of a business and his chief operating officer or something of that sort. But this rich man discovers that his manager is apparently not good at his job. Actually, the word used there. Uh, is the same word used in the parable we looked at last week in Luke chapter 15 to describe the, the younger son. In Luke 15, 13, Jesus says that the younger son took his father's inheritance and he went off to a foreign land where he squandered all his wealth. And here in Luke 16, he says that this manager is accused of wasting or squandering his master's possessions. It's the same, same word. So we don't fully know what that means, but it's not good from the rich man's standpoint. Maybe he's just made some bad investments. Maybe he's doing something illegal, embezzling. We don't really know. Jesus doesn't explain. But the rich man finds out he has less now than he did before, and it's because of his manager, and he's not a fan of that. And so he tells his manager to get his things in order, clean out his desk. It's time to leave. And I suppose it's pretty common that anyone losing their job is going to have some uncertainties about you know, what comes next, what they're going to do, how they're going to put food on the table, whatever it might be. And so this manager's no different. He starts thinking things through. What does this mean? And apparently being a manager is the only thing he thinks he's qualified to do, and he's just proven he's not very good at that. So if he leaves this job, his options are going to be limited. You've got to explain on your resume why you had to leave your last job, you know, and, and that's probably not going to make him all that appealing in the job market. So he starts thinking through what this is going to look like. And Really, whether he's right or not, in his mind, the only options that are going to be available to him are digging and begging. Now, you probably don't need me to spend a lot of time explaining history lessons to uh, get you to understand that digging ditches has never really been the epitome of work experience ever in the history of human work. But this manager knows that after years at his desk job, he is not cut out for hard manual labor day in and day out. It's not exactly a perfect parallel, but in the month or so between when you all agreed that, that you were going to let me come here and be your preacher, and when I actually moved here, I was uh, staying at home with my parents and had a fair amount of downtime, and so one of the things I, was, I would do in that downtime is I would take my dad's chainsaw and go out in the woods. There was a bunch of trees down. would try to cut, up and cut them up into firewood for my parents. 
And usually doing that brought two thoughts to mind for me. The first one would come as I was going out into the woods for the day, and it was usually something along the lines of, don't cut your leg off because you don't want to have to call this church and explain to them what has happened. So that thought would normally come on the way out. And on the way back in, the thought would usually be something along the lines of, yeah, I'm not cut out for this. Like, I could not, if, if my well-being, if, if, you know, my survival depended upon my ability to operate a chainsaw, I would be in trouble very quickly. And those are the sort of thoughts going through this manager's head. He's not cut out for digging. But the second option of begging doesn't seem all that appealing either. And the world of honor and shame that Jesus and his first followers are a part of to have to live as a beggar is humiliating. And this manager's too high up on the social ladder. He's got too much cachet to have to lower himself to the position of begging to be able to survive. I mean, it it would be humiliating for him and his family to have no other options but for him to just sit outside some place like the temple day after day, just asking people for money, maybe people he used to work with, people he used to make business deals with, and now he has to ask for their charity. He doesn't want to have to deal with that humiliation, having to look them in the eye. He doesn't want to have to deal with the thoughts of what are they saying to one another after they're out of earshot from me. I'm not able to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And then he has an epiphany. Maybe he's not able to save himself from getting fired. Maybe he's not even able to guarantee that he'll have another job waiting for him once his time is up here. But at minimum, he is going to make sure that as he leaves this job, there are people that he is on the good side of. So he starts calling in people that owe his boss money or various debts he calls in the first one the first one owes a debt of 900 gallons of olive oil the manager hears that and he says let's just knock 50 percent off and call it good second one comes in and owes a thousand bushels of wheat the manager says let's knock 20 percent off it'll be fine he doesn't explain anything he just starts forgiving debts which is a little confusing i'm sure to the people in this story and to us as we try to make sense of what jesus is getting at here. Some people suggest that, that what the manager's doing here is he's taking the commission he would get off of these debts off the amount that is owed, and that the people who owe these debts would know that, so they'd be really impressed with his generosity, his sacrifice, to be, able, to be willing to reduce the debt uh, to take out his piece of the, of the pie, so to speak, and so then they would be more willing to, to like him, to be generous towards him. Some people suggest that maybe uh, the manager's knocking off the interest that is owed on these debts. And that since the Old Testament law said you shouldn't charge interest on debts that you owed, what the manager's doing is exposing his misdealings and the misdealings of his boss. And, and so if the, the rich man wants to get back the money that he's owed, he's going to have to admit that he's breaking Old Testament law and he's not going to want to do that. And so, uh, and so he's, these people who owe these debts are getting away with a better deal. And some of those explanations are helpful, and, and at least part of the reason they exist is because this is a strange parable. If you're familiar with the parables of Jesus, typically in something like this, there's a clear progression to the numbers. Like, it makes sense, but these are just a little more random than normal. And so it seems odd, and we might want to try to sort out what's happening. And as I said, some of those things are helpful, some of them are not, but I think, if nothing else, Jesus is the one telling the story, and he tells us what he wants us to know so that we can get to the point that he is trying to make. 
Because in a desperate attempt to save himself, this manager starts reducing the debts that are owed to his master, which changes both how he is perceived and how his master is perceived by the one who are the ones responsible for the debts. I mean, for himself, he's, he's uh, ingratiating himself to those who owe money to his, to his boss. I mean, they're going to be grateful that to have this debt reduced. They're going to be more willing to like him, to help him out if he is put on the streets soon. But more than that, he's putting his boss in an awkward position because uh, the people who owe his boss this money, they don't know that this manager is just desperately trying to save his job at this point. All they know is that they owed a debt, and now that debt's a lot smaller than it was before. And that is good news, regardless of the reason why. So the rich man, the owner, the boss here, he can either go through with firing his manager and go to all these people who have had their debts reduced and said, yeah, no, you you have to pay back the full amount, at which point it's going to look like he fired the manager for reducing these debts, which is going to make him look like a grumpy old guy who's only concerned about money and going to make all these people uh, uh, feel bad for the the manager who has been let go and, and think, you know, he's just a nice guy. He was just trying to help and he lost his job over it. We should be nice to him. Or this rich man can go through with his decision to fire his manager. He can, or excuse me, he can go back on his decision, decide to keep him on, even though he doesn't want to, even though this manager's not good at his job. And he can try to take credit for the generosity, say it was his idea, even though he had nothing to do with it. And it's, Definitely not what he would have done if it had been him. Faced with losing his job, this manager decides to fight a public relations battle, if we can put it that way. He puts his boss in the position where he can either fire the manager, which he wants to do, and take a hit in his popularity for doing so, or he can keep the manager on even though he doesn't want to, but it will make him look better in the process. It's, it's quite a scheme he's worked out here. And Jesus tells this story, and then in verse 8, praises this dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. Or if you're reading from a different translation, it might say wisely or astutely or something like that. Which at first glance makes it sound like Jesus is praising someone who cooks the books and is praising them for doing so. But notice what Jesus does and does not say in verse 8. He does not praise this manager for being crooked in his business dealings. He praises him for being shrewd or astute or maybe prudent is a good translation. To simplify it, Jesus doesn't say, hey, go be like this guy who is dishonest in business. He says, go be like this guy who uses what he has to the best of his ability." Jesus is not praising lying or dishonesty. It would be strange if he was. He's praising the use of what is available, no matter what it is, for the purpose at hand, even going to great lengths to do so. And Jesus tells us this story and says, this is how we should approach matters of his kingdom. This unjust steward, dishonest manager went to great lengths to make sure that even if he lost his job, he would not lose everything. And in the same way, Jesus says we should go to great lengths to ensure that at the end of our lives, we and as many people as we have influence over as possible will be able to say that we fulfilled the calling God placed over our lives. 
If it's true that the message of Jesus is the most important message someone could ever hear in their lifetimes, and I am assuming that if you're listening to me right now, you are at least considering that it might be, that should change how we view the resources at our disposal. Whether it's our own talents or abilities or our finances, whatever it might be. Which cuts against our world. We live in a world that prioritizes comfort, that what you have and who you are, everything should be aligned towards the end goal of making your life as simple and as comfortable as possible. What you have is yours. The most important thing is that you would do what you want with what you have. And I'm not saying that any and all comfort is automatically bad. Otherwise, we'd have to get rid of the chairs you're sitting in right now, I guess. But I am saying that the priorities of the kingdom of God are not the same as the priorities of our world. And when we buy into the message our world feeds us about how everything we do and have should have our own personal comfort as its end goal, we miss out on the life Jesus desires for us. So this text challenges us to look at our world, look at ourselves with a kingdom lens so that now and in the future we might have life with our God. And in the second half of this passage, Jesus expands on that thought to flesh out why it is so important. Verses 10 to 15, Jesus is still speaking. He says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. If you spend much time around anyone, you will probably pretty quickly pick up on their uh, quirks, favorite phrases, whatever it might be, things that show up in lots of situations because they are core to who they are. If you don't believe me, ask Whitney after church about the quirks of her dad, but uh, just as an example. Yeah. <laughs> I should have thought about that a little more, shouldn't I have? Yeah. But I say that not just to get a dig in on my future father-in-law, but because you might notice as we read these verses that a lot of the things Jesus says here probably sound familiar and probably don't sound all that related to what is going on. Maybe as we read these verses, you might have thought, like, that sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure I've, I've heard that before in the Gospels. I just didn't think it was here. And if you had that thought, that's probably because there are statements Jesus makes multiple times in multiple situations because they are central to who he is and central to this message of the kingdom of God. They might not seem all that connected to the parable we've just looked at at first glance, but Jesus is wanting us to see the differences between life now and the life to come. If we can't be trusted to live with kingdom values now 
in the present. That probably means we will not live with kingdom values in the future or in the life to come. And Jesus doesn't lay out that truth because it's a matter of proving your value so that you can be rewarded uh, in the next life with the, all the, because of all the good things you did in this life. He says this because regardless of what we claim to be true about us, our actions in the present reveal where our heart actually is. What is true about our hearts now will only become more true in eternity. And that's a truth Jesus expands on in the parable we'll look at next week. But the point is that eternal life starts now. And if we don't live in light of eternity in the present, that probably means we haven't understood the, God, the life that God desires for us in the present, and therefore we'll miss out in the future. Jesus is saying that we should live in light of heaven now to prepare ourselves for what the future holds. If you remember back to what Jesus said in chapter 14 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, he, we saw that to truly follow Jesus was to put him first and foremost ahead of everything else, no questions asked. And so, asked. And so if we find ourselves living with two masters, as Jesus phrases it here, maybe following him on certain days of the week or in certain areas of, the life, but of, of life but not in others, that means we haven't actually fully accepted his call. And we're missing out on the life he desires for us. And as Jesus is saying this, there are some overhearing him that are offended. And their offense demonstrates that they've missed the call of his kingdom, that they are the ones Jesus is speaking to. If you can picture it, the Pharisees are almost sitting in the back of the class with their arms crossed, rolling their eyes at what Jesus has to say. The dictionary definition of the word that's translated sneering there in verse 14 is to use the nose as a means of ridicule just in case you want to try to express ridicule with your nose later today but they're scoffing they're sneering they're offended that jesus would have the nerve to say things like don't love money use your riches for the sake of the kingdom say things like you can't serve two masters and the reason why is we are told in verse, is what we're told in verse 14, because they love money. They don't like what Jesus is saying because he is the one that they are, he, he is speaking to them and calling them to repent. They disagree with the premise that it's, it's not possible to serve two masters because they're pretty sure they're doing it pretty well right now. And Jesus tells them that their attempt will fail. Jesus is calling them to repent, and yet instead of listening to Jesus, instead of walking in the life that he desires for them, their response is to scoff, to assume that he must be wrong, because if Jesus is right, then they would have to change some things, and they sure don't want to have to change some things, so it's better to just assume that Jesus is wrong. And yet Jesus makes it clear God sees all. He will not be treated by the Pharisees or by us as an assistant who is just there to do our bidding as a vending machine who will give us what we want as long as we know the right code. His kingdom is the most important thing we will ever encounter, and therefore it should be treated as such. And if our reaction to that is to roll our eyes and wonder if the brakes maybe need to be pumped a little bit, do we really need to take Jesus that seriously? Maybe, maybe I can put a foot in both camps. 
that might mean we're not actually hearing what he has to say. And it might sound harsh in those terms, believe me, but in my experience, anything that is worth participating in requires investment. I played sports all through high school. There was never an opportunity I was made aware of to get a jersey and show up for games if you hadn't put the work in in practice. Because if you could not be trusted to be diligent to put the work in to, be, to prepare when the stakes were low, the chances were pretty good you wouldn't be able to be trusted when the stakes were high. I've never seen someone get a diploma or be certified for some line of work without doing something to prepare ahead of time. Because if you haven't been formed by whatever it is that you are striving towards, you will probably never reach the end that you're pursuing. And hear me when I say that. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm not saying Jesus desires you to cross X, Y, and Z off a checklist before he will say that he loves you. I'm not saying that at all. If you don't believe me, go back and read Luke 15. I'm saying that whether or not we are currently... I'm saying that Jesus is asking us here whether or not we are currently living in light of his kingdom that has already been established, if we are already living as if eternity has already begun, because it has. Because if we are not, as the Pharisees are not in this passage, it's a pretty good indication that we've missed the life Jesus desires for us. So what do we do? If I can try to summarize things down into two steps that I think can be applied in a lot of different ways. I think Jesus calls us to recognize here first that everything hinges around the kingdom. And second, we should live like it. If the message of Jesus is the good news that is capable of healing all the wounds of our world, that means it should be at the top of our priority list. It should be the lens through which we view everything. It should be the perspective from which we look at how we live our lives, how we spend our free time, how we allocate our finances, it should be at the center of everything. Everything hinges around the kingdom, and therefore we should live like it. And as I say that, I am fully aware that to a certain extent, all I can really do is present that truth and then trust that God is at work in your life to show you what it looks like to specifically apply that principle where you are. I don't know what that looks like for you. I know of friends that have played in a, adult soccer leagues in their city, partly because they like playing soccer, but more so because they recognize in their own life they did not have very many opportunities to be around people who did not know Jesus, and this seemed like an opportunity to create those moments. I've had friends be intentional about when they took out the trash so that they could be out in their driveway at the same time as their neighbors, which I know sounds a little creepy. But if everything hinges around the kingdom, then it's an honest attempt to find ways to connect with people in our neighborhoods to show them that everything hinges around the kingdom. So I don't know what that looks like for you, but everything hinges around the kingdom and we should live like it. Maybe it looks like living on less than you could live on so that you can be more generous towards kingdom causes because you recognize that is where everything hinges. Maybe it looks like thinking about where you can best serve others when thinking about where to live, what job is next, where to go to college. Maybe it just starts with deciding that this week you're going to get up a little earlier than normal just to have some time where you have nothing to commit to, nothing to attend to other than just reading God's Word and asking Him how He wants to form you in light of it. 
I don't know what it specifically looks like for you, but I know that for each of us, we are called to center everything about who we are around this kingdom Jesus came to establish. Because of my line of work, my hunch is I have probably spent more time with people who know their time on earth is limited than the average person my age. And I don't want to overgeneralize, but it does seem that most of the time when you are with someone who knows their time on earth is short, they have a far different perspective. I'm sure we've all heard the cliche that no one lays on their deathbed and wishes they'd spent more time in the office. And that's a cliche because it's true. Being near the end of life, knowing our time is limited, forces us to see what truly matters. And most of the time, it seems like that when someone is in that position, again, I don't want to be too general, but it does seem like that that can bring a lot of thoughts of of regret, of, ah, I should have done this. I wish I hadn't spent so much time here. I should have had more time with this person. And I understand that. And yet at the same time, if it's true that eternal life begins the moment we begin following Jesus, and if it's true that everything hinges around the kingdom and that we are to live in light of that, that means that a follower of Jesus does not have to wait until the end of life to think about what to do with this limited time on earth. And that actually if we begin thinking those thoughts far before that time comes, it frees us from those feelings of regret and despair. Because everything hinges around the kingdom, we can and should live each day in light of eternity. Knowing that our time on earth is limited, and yet at the same time, knowing that what we do with that time is done in light of the eternal life we have waiting for us in God. So wherever we are, may we come and experience life within this kingdom as God desires us to have. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for sending your... God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross for our sins, to raise to new life so that we might have life with you, life that is not something for far off in the future that we can get to one day and do whatever we want in the meantime, but life that starts now as we walk in your presence day after day. God, we're astounded that you would invite us in to be a part of your work to bring healing to all of creation. We ask that you would give us wisdom, give us faithfulness, to pursue wherever you are leading us as we live in light of your kingdom where you have us right here and right now. God, I ask as a bunch of individuals who are following you and as a community, as a family following you together. God, give us wisdom for how to live as kingdom people in the present because of what you have promised will come in the future so that we can begin to experience a foretaste of that life to come. It's because of Jesus and what he has done and in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.